Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is The Ruin and the Deluge, 1655-1667, to part one of three. In Central Europe, the year 1648 marks a watershed moment, the Peace of Westphalia, which after 30 years of warfare at last brought a degree of relative peace and stability to the regions of the Holy Roman Empire. Elsewhere in Europe, however, violence and turmoil, if anything, increased in the second half of the 17th century. A series of political and social convulsions, collectively known to historians as the crises of the 17th century, shook the continent from England and Ireland in the west to Russia in the east, and from Scandinavia in the north to Italy and Spain in the south. Historians often view these crises as a combination of a struggle which had been taking place for several centuries within many European states, between a centralised authority, usually invested in the king, on the one hand, and rival political centres, often noble and urban estates, on the other. It can be seen as a period of history where representative assemblies were reduced or eliminated, where power became concentrated in the hands of monarchs who, with their closely controlled administrations, attempted to rule in, as they saw it, a more efficient and enlightened manner, ushering in the period of enlightened absolutism. This set of episodes focuses on two crises in particular, which would end up transforming the map of Eastern Europe. Firstly, the period of ruin, usually marked from 1657 to 1686, but which has its roots in a Cossack uprising of 1648, is a major turning point in the history of Ukraine. In this period, 
Ukraine experienced a breakdown in order, with foreign invasions, civil war and peasant revolts, leading to its territory being divided among Poland, Muscovy and the Ottomans. Another crisis, which affected the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, is known as the Deluge, a term popularised by the author Henryk Sienkiewicz in his novel called The Deluge of 1886, which tells the story of a soldier who fought in the conflicts of the period. In a wider sense, the Deluge applies to the period between the Cossack Uprising of 1648 and the Truce of Andrusova in 1667. In a stricter sense, the term refers more specifically to the Swedish invasion and occupation of the Commonwealth in 1655. Whatever exact period is used, the deluge was a major factor in Poland's decline, writes Antony Upton in his book Europe 1600-1789. Its economy suffered serious structural damage after 20 years of continuous war, losing it is estimated one-third of its population, as well as its status as a great power. The Cossack Uprising of 1648 was by no means the first. In fact, it was the seventh major Cossack rebellion of that century. The Zaporozhian Cossacks, those in Ukraine, for example, had rebelled in 1638, when the Polish king attempted to replace their leader. And then again in 1646, when King Vladislav reneged on the deal he had made with them to grant them a charter of nobility in return for their assistance in a campaign against the Ottoman Empire. The central character of the 1648 uprising was a registered Cossack by the name of Bogdan Khmelnytsky. He is seen by different nationalities and radically different ways by Polish writers as the instigator of a destructive uprising which seriously undermined their state, by Russian historians as someone who led the orthodox, quote, little Russians into the fold of a united Russian state, and by Ukrainian writers as an outstanding leader who successfully restored the idea of national independence. A monument dedicated to him stands today in Sofia Square in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and is one of the city's main symbols. Aged 53 at the time, Khmelnytsky was an unlikely leader of a rebellion, a petty noble who had served the king loyally in numerous battles. The trigger was a local squabble over a land grant. The servant of a prominent Commonwealth official took an estate from him, and had his son flogged to the point where he died of his injuries soon after. Khmelnytsky turned to the courts, but to no avail. While in Warsaw, he even appealed to King Vladislav, who, although he sympathised, admitted he was powerless to intervene in a political system dominated by the high nobles. When Khmelnytsky returned home, he was arrested, but managed to escape, and with nowhere else to turn, decided to follow in the footsteps of hundreds of discontented registered Cossacks and lower gentry before him. He fled to the Zaporozhian Sikh, the independent Cossacks who lived beyond the reach of the Polish authorities. Shortly afterwards he was elected their hetman, 
Olira. If Khmelnytsky was the spark that ignited the rebellion, the tinder was provided by deep social, religious and national tensions which existed in the region. The brutal crushing of a series of rebellions had only served to inflame those tensions further. Within the Commonwealth, an increasing amount of royal land had fallen into the hands of the most powerful magnates of the land, at the expense of the lower nobility. The problem was particularly acute in the southern lands, where the state's relationship to the various categories of Cossacks and the broader strata of nobles had long been ambivalent. The Cossacks knew they were a crucial element of the military structure, but felt frequently did not receive the rewards they deserved, either financially or in terms of increased status. From the point of view of the leading Polish magnates, they were grateful for the military help of the Cossacks, especially at the Battle of Khotin in 1621, but did not forget that it was the Cossacks who had done much to provoke the war in the first place. There was also serious shortcomings in the Commonwealth's military structure. The principal problem there, according to Robert Frost, was the failure of the Commonwealth authorities to develop a permanent framework within which its semi-professional forces could develop, in part a consequence of the way in which its armies were sustained. The ruling nobility demanded that any taxation required for the military was temporary, and voted for limited periods. There was a pervasive suspicion of the king's motives for war, especially as in this period the monarchs were usually foreigners, elected rather than hereditary. The result was that the Polish crown never even received the monies it was entitled to, and therefore was unable to build a fleet, maintain and improve fortifications, or to fill the royal armories. Before confronting the Commonwealth army, Khmelnytsky turned to the Crimean Tatars in his search for allies. The Khan of Crimea, Islam III Jirai, was receptive to an alliance for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he wished to punish the Poles for attacks on his Khanate. Also, with famine in his realm and strife among his nobles, he saw an opportunity to plunder Ukrainian lands with the approval of the Cossacks themselves. Poland's governing elite were divided on how to handle the Cossack-Tatar threat, but anyway convinced of their own superiority in military skills. An army of some 9,200 men were sent south to put down rebellion, but they were intercepted by a joint force of Cossacks and Tatar cavalry, and defeated at the Battle of Jovti Vodou in late 1648. The registered Cossacks on the Polish side deserted to Khmelnytsky, and the expanded rebel force pursued the Poles and defeated them several days later in a second battle at Kosun, in which both chief Polish commanders were killed. The scale of the victory at Kosun was breathtaking and transformed the strategic situation in Ukraine. Upon hearing of the Cossack victories, discontented elements throughout the region were inspired to revolt. Peasants drove out their Polish landlords, and Orthodox clergy called for vengeance against Roman Catholics and Unionite priests.
The local Jewish population suffered in particular from the violence, many of whom were killed or forced to flee their homes. Added to the turmoil was the indiscriminate plundering of the Tatars, who went on the rampage across towns and villages, whose inhabitants were killed or captured and sent to slave markets. Even after Khmelnytsky had defeated the Polish army twice, it is likely, according to Robert Mogoski, they would have welcomed the opportunity to work with the Polish elite, as long as they could assure him of personal legal redress and restoration of rights to his fellow Cossacks. The Polish leadership were, however, occupied with the election of a new leader after, by chance, King Vladislav died on the eve of the Battle of Kosyn. This was very unfortunate, as it left temporarily a political vacuum in the Polish capital at a critical moment. In the meantime, the rebellion got out of control, and by the end of the summer had engulfed the regions of Kiev, Bratislav, Podolia and Volhynia. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Khmelnytsky marched halfway to Warsaw when he received reassurances from the newly elected king, John Casimir, that he would do his best to provide the concessions asked for. The hetman's attitude began to change, however, after a visit to Kiev in January 1649. There he was greeted by the Orthodox Metropolitan of Kiev and the Patriarch of Jerusalem. The church leaders urged him to help form an alliance with Muscovy, Moldavia and Transylvania to help free the Orthodox Church and its worshippers from the dominance of the Catholic Poles. From this point, the conflict took on a religious dimension, where Orthodox followers of the region were attracted to fight beside Khmelnytsky with their religious brethren against non-believers. Inspiring men to join from all sectors of society, the Khmelnytsky Rebellion achieved a scale far beyond those before. Khmelnytsky also sought military assistance from the Ottomans. However, at the time the Turks were engaged in sea battles with the Venetians. The advisers of the seven-year-old Sultan Mehmed IV, instead of sending their own troops, encouraged their Crimean Tatar vassals to continue supporting the rebellion. 
1651, King John Casimir led a large army south and crushed the Cossacks at the Battle of Berestechko, thanks largely to the flight of the Tatar units who had been entrusted with defending their Cossacks' left flank. Khmelnytsky recovered his position by defeating the Poles in battle some months later, but the military situation had reached a stalemate. The Tatars appeared to actively be provoking discord between the two sides, preventing either one from gaining the upper hand. An armistice between the Cossacks and the Poles, signed in September, was a political setback for Khmelnytsky. He was no nearer achieving his goal of the restructuring of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth into a federation of three equal states, Poland, Lithuania and Ukraine. Reaching an agreement with the Polish authorities was turning out to be impossible, so realising they could never achieve victory on their own, Khmelnytsky and his fellow Cossacks looked elsewhere for allies. They appealed several times to Tsar Alexis in Moscow, whose initial response was cautious. Moscow was, at first, reluctant to break its armistice with Poland. The passing away of King Vladislav potentially offered an opportunity to negotiate a Polish-Muscovite alliance against the Crimean Tatars, or even for Tsar Alexis to claim the Polish crown. They were also cautious to back a rebellion that might yet fail. On the other hand, the Russians were concerned that if they weren't careful, the Cossack Hetmanate may become a protectorate of the Ottomans, though Sultan Mehmet IV was pressing Branditsky to formally accept vassalage. But the crucial consideration which motivated the Russians to help was the opportunity to recover the city of Smolensk and other territories which they had lost to the Poles in 1618. In June 1654, with the Russian Orthodox Patriarch acting as mediator, Tsar Alexis sent a message to Khmelnytsky that he would take Ukraine under his protection and that he was readying his army for war. Quote, we have designed to take you under the lofty hand of our Tsarist Majesty, so that you may not be a proverb and a byword to the enemies of the cross of Christ. End quote. Brian Davis writes that Alexis's decision was based on hopes for particular short-term advantages, rather than so much about long-term outcomes. He hoped to seize territory in Lithuania, which would give the Muscovite-Ukrainian alliance enough strength to persuade the Polish king to abandon his attempts to reconquer Ukraine. The two sides negotiated the details during the month of January 1654 in the city of Pereslav. Disagreements arose because the Cossacks expected that the Tsar would swear an oath to them, as was the practice for Polish kings. The Russians, however, declined on the grounds that the Tsar could not bind himself by oath to a subject. In the agreement finally reached, the Cossacks made a pledge of allegiance to the Tsar of Muscovy in return for military protection, the so-called March Articles, that stipulated an autonomous status of the Ukrainian hetmanate within the Russian state. The agreement has since been a matter of bitter controversy, but its historical importance is undeniable. Writes Paul Mogoski in his book, A History of Ukraine, quote, The agreement of Perislav subsequently proved an important turning point in Eastern European history. It signalled a gradual change whereby Muscovy, not Poland, became the dominant power in the region. 
As for Ukraine, 1654 ended a six-year period which marked the culmination of more than half a century of Cossack struggle for autonomy within Poland. When the Polish solution no longer seemed feasible, the Cossacks sought autonomy with Muscovy instead. Whatever writers subsequently wrote about Perislav, one thing is certain. After 1654, the Tsardom of Muscovy considered Cossack Ukraine, which it henceforth referred to as Little Russia, its legal patrimony. It is with Perislav that one can speak of the beginnings of the Muscovite or Russian phase in Ukrainian history. End quote. 300 years later, in 1954, the Soviet Union lavishly celebrated the tricentennial of the quote, reunification of Ukraine and Russia. The Russian army had been recently strengthened with many more recruits and was well supplied and well equipped. Their primary objective was the recapture of Smolensk on the West Rus territory ceded to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania 20 years before. Instead of one great strike against Smolensk, Alexis's campaign into Lithuania was launched on three fronts, two armies, each 15,000 strong, and the main force of 41,000. In contrast, the Polish army was ill-prepared for war. The chief commander, or field hetman of Lithuania, Janusz Radziwill, had barely 11,000 men available. Although he achieved a victory over the invading Russians on the 12th of August 1654 at the Battle of Szkło, he suffered considerable losses 12 days later at the Battle of Szepilowicz and effectively abandoned Smolensk to its fate. The Muscovites picked off a series of barely defended towns and cities, systematically extending control over the Smolensk area. The city of Smolensk was in a terrible condition. Little more than cosmetic repairs had been made to the damage inflicted in the siege in 1633, and the garrison was barely three and a half thousand strong, short of arms and ammunition. Smolensk defended itself tenaciously, but with no hope of rescue, they surrendered on the 3rd of October. With the Polish-Lithuanian army in disarray, the Russians became hopeful of further gains. This did not go unnoticed elsewhere, including in Stockholm. The young new king of Sweden, Charles X, became alarmed that Muscovite advances in Lithuania were putting in danger his project of bringing Polish-Livonia, Courland and Prussia under his control and tightening his grip on the Baltic. The Russian invasion of Lithuania and support of the Cossack rebellion thus internationalised the crisis and led to a further spiralling of conflict. My name is Carlo Eilert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. I recognise this period of history is unfamiliar to many. Uh, I would recommend a couple of films which would be helpful to get a feeling of that time which are based around the period of the Khmelnytsky Rebellion. Uh, one is called With Fire and Sword and the other is The Deluge. Both are based on the books by Henrik Sinkovich, which I mentioned earlier. They can be a bit difficult to follow, even with the uh, English subtitles, but, they, but they're really lavishly done and give a great image of the customs and the, and the 
costumes and that type of thing of that time. If you enjoy this podcast, perhaps you'd consider becoming a, a patron. You can go to www.patreon.com slash history Europe. And there for just $3 a month, you can gain access to additional material. I recently put one up on the sieges of Drogheda and Wexford of 1649 in, in Ireland. When after the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell wanted to regain control of, of Ireland. As always, it would be great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, or you can write directly, Carl, that's Carl with a C, at historyeurope.net. Next week, I look forward to continuing the story of the ruin and the deluge and this turbulent period of East European history. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best. And goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.